to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films, and frankly, everything movie-related. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest, radio, television, and film actor, producer, and screenwriter, Tommy Cook. Welcome, Tommy. Oh, Steve, it's nice to uh, be with you. How you doing? I'm doing great. Happy holiday season to you. Um, after uh, looking over some of your credits and some of your background, I, I see that you are so steeped in film history and radio history, and I'm just so looking forward to talking to you. I, I find that by talking to someone like you, I get a window into a history that I'm not as familiar with, and I'm looking forward to uh, digging into this. Um, tell, tell me about your early days. You're originally born in Minnesota, correct? Right, Duluth, Minnesota, right. Were you, uh, was your family at all in show business? Uh, no. Um, my father um, was uh, very, very bright. Um, he was a uh, salutatorian at... Uh, Duluth Central High School, and then he went to Harvard, and um, he got sick one year, and but was able to uh, come back and graduate in his original class in three years. And my mother was a wonderful woman. She graduated from actually a couple of universities, and um, he... Um, got into uh, occupational therapy and became a great ceramics uh, woman. So I had wonderful parents, but uh, they weren't into show business. My dad loved going um, uh, when he could uh, at Harvard, going into the local areas and watching some legit shows and stuff. But um, they were never in the uh, entertainment business. So um, you uh, started out early on acting. Uh, um, I read somewhere that you were eight years old and the producer Arch Obler spotted you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Uh, Arch Obler is a very important person in my life and one of the true iconic writer-directors um, in radio um, along with Orson Welles and Norman Corwin. They were the three greatest, and I had the opportunity of working with all of them, especially Arch Obler. Um, just to go back a little bit, uh, we came to California for my dad's health. He came down with Bryce disease. Kidneys were infected. And um, so... Um, my dad couldn't handle driving a car across country, so he took a train. But um, uh, my uh, mom hired a driver, and we drove from Duluth to Los Angeles. Um, my mother, my older sister, and my grandmother, Flora. And when we got to Texas, in Van Horn, Texas, a head-on collision... Uh, nobody was killed, but everybody seriously injured. 
I remember being on the floor in the ambulance driving us to El Paso where we had uh, surgery. And uh, so that's how we got to um, California. Now, it seems I don't have a memory prior to that accident in Texas. From that point on, I've had a terrific memory. But they tell me that when I was very, very young in Minnesota, uh, my dad and his brothers um, had clothing stores, M. Cook and Sons, and um, in, in Duluth and St. Paul and then in Minneapolis. And at a rotary function, they tell me that I used to get on a table and start doing dances and stuff, and that I would put on funny outfits and entertain my grandmother. So um, I guess that's what gave the idea to my mom when we came to California that uh, maybe I might have some kind of talent. And um, so she took me to the Pasadena Playhouse and I got the lead in the first play, Peter Goes to the Fair, directed by Betty Smith. I'll never forget that. I stayed on for the next year and a half, did seven plays there. Now my mother reads an article in a magazine about a free, um, to have a free um, audio test at um, NBC at Sunset and Vine. Oh, boy. So um, they uh, called me in uh, for an interview, and I... Um, I um, did the uh, I did the interview, the audition, and a couple of weeks later, I get a call from Arch Obler's company to come in and uh, and audition for a small part in his NBC show, um, the um, the uh, Every Man's Every Man's Theater. So. Um, it called for a little German boy, and I don't know whether I got the accent, but I could play a little German boy. <laughs> and so uh, I get the part. It uh, was a show starring Alan Nazimova, the great Russian actress. So after the show, Arch comes out and he thanks everybody, thanks Alan Nazimova. And he said, uh, you know, I got to go to Chicago next week. I got to do this show with this young Dickie Highland kid. Good actor, but uh, I don't want to go to Chicago. I want to stay in town. Allah whispers into Arch's ear and says, if you don't want to go to Chicago, take a chance on this little Tommy Cook. Well, next week. I star in Problem Papa on Every Man's Theater. Howard Duff plays my father. Mercedes McCambridge plays the leading lady in it. And the uh, unbelievable Gordon Jenkins doing the music. And that's when it really started. So I became part of Arch Obler's stock company, the greatest. I mean, we're talking about Elliot Lewis and Lou Merrill. Hans Conried, Lorene Tuttle, Mary Jane Croft, and the, the, those wonderful people in radio. 
And uh, so I ended up starring in um, several shows for Arch. And then in 1942, I'm 12, uh, he had a new series during the Second World War, Plays for Americans. And I starred in several of those radio plays. So that's how it, that's how it all started, Steve. So you started in radio, but about the same time, in 1940, you are cast in uh, The Adventures of Red Rider, that Western right. serial. That's and, correct. Uh, and the so, good old Republic Studios out in the valley on Radford Street. And uh, yes, I was 10 years old, 1940. And I auditioned, and I got the role of the Little Beaver in The Adventures of Red Rider, starring Don Berry and some good character actors in the film. And uh, I enjoyed that a lot. I had ridden with my uncle on weekends, so I had some experience as a horseback rider. But, of course, you know, with the real scenes, the... The action scenes with Little Beaver, I had a, a stuntman. But one of the nice things about doing the Red Rider serial, it was a 12-episode serial, was that we had the greatest stuntman of all time, Davy Sharp. Oh, God, he was so good to me and to my mother. As you know, in radio, and, uh, and in films and television, not radio, but films and television, uh, if you're under the age of 18, you have to have your mother there and you have to have a teacher on the set and to do four hours worth of uh, schoolwork. But um, anyway, um, Davy Sharp was, uh, he was, there was nobody like him. And he did the stunts for Red Rider, etc. So that... Um, uh, you got me. That's uh, one of the first films. I think the first thing I ever did was a short at RKO <clears throat> or at MGM called The Greenie. I just had you know, a line or two in the film. But um, that's where my film work uh, uh, began. So I'll get back to you now, Steve. No, no, that's, it's very interesting to me because... Um... <clears throat> This is a period I'm not that familiar with. I know that since since Steven Spielberg's been a director, there's always been these uh, comparisons to some of his shows like Raiders of the Lost Ark to the old sure. serials. But I think that I started watching movies pretty much after the serials had been done because I started watching movies in the late 50s uh, you know, in, in, and mostly science fiction, fantasy, and horror films because those were the the matinees they used to do for the kids. They used to call them kitty matinees. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of them were, were not exactly kitty matinees because I ended up sitting in the lobby because I just couldn't take the horror ones. It was just too freaky for an only uh, kind of a sheltered only child. Um, but um, now you were still you had teachers on the set when you were working the serial. Did you did, was this yes. a regular thing or did you attend regular school as well? No, um, I. I attended regular school. I went to Carthay Center School, which was near our home on the 6517 Olympic Place. And um, 
and then uh, John Burroughs Junior High, and then L.A. High School, and uh, from there to UCLA. But um, that all, uh, I had to leave um, the, my schooling there uh, at those schools when I was doing a television show or a film, not radio. But um, And so a different teacher would be on the set and staying with me where I had to do schoolwork for four hours a day. And uh, they would only allow a youngster under 18 in the film to be in front of the camera for a certain amount of time. Of course, uh, of course. Those were the rules back then. Now, but those were glorious days for me. Now, is, I also read that you were a Marine. Oh, yes. I, um, in 19, uh, it was like 1952, somewhere around that time, I got a nice letter from the government saying that I had been drafted in the Army. And, um, and the reason why I got that letter was because when I was going to UCLA, I left to uh, travel to um, the Philippines to do a film with Tyrone Power. Um, American Guerrilla in the Philippines. American Guerrilla in the Philippines, yeah. Duna ba hapundini, nakaibulo baka maukini kitao, dini samindinao. Still remember some of my lines from that. Anyway, so I was out of school. And because of that, I get a letter from the government saying that I've been drafted in the Army. Well, I pondered and I said, well, I guess I got to go. But I don't want to go in the Army. If I have to go, I want to be with the best. So I snuck downtown at a Marine recruiting station, and I put myself in the Marine Corps. I called my mom and I said, well, they got me, Mom. I'm going to fight. I'm going into training. She says, well, Tommy, have a good time at Fort Ord in San Francisco in the Army. I said, no, Ma, I ain't going there. I'm going down to San Diego Recruit Depot Center. I'm in the U.S. Marines. Boom, went the phone. My mother almost had a heart attack. <laughs> so that's... Uh, so I, um, as I say, I I went to uh, San Diego Recruit Depot uh, for the um, initial training and then went to Camp Pendleton in Oceanside, where I stayed there for a couple of years. And I was in infantry, ready to go to um, uh, Korea to fight. And a week or two before, the um, commanding general gets a notice from a vice president of NBC or somebody, I don't really know exactly who it was, explaining my background. And they decided that I would be more valuable in a different section of the Marine Corps than going to Korea fighting in the infantry. So um, 
I stayed in the United States uh, in the Marine Corps, and I was uh, put in, um, I'm trying to think of the, uh, but it was in a, a section where we had a radio show, Marines in Review, on ABC. Yeah, I think it's And every Smith. week, yeah. they would come in with a um, camera truck right to Camp Pendleton, and uh, we would do the radio show, a half-hour radio show. I'd play the hero each week. And, um, but um, I enjoyed my venture with the Marines. Very proud to be a U.S. Marine and met some, had some great buddies there. Well, you, you uh, are quite a voice because you can do many dialects and voices. And I read somewhere that early in your career, you did a lot of different ethnicities. You obviously got the role as the little German boy, but it seems to me that you played a lot of exotic types. Yeah, well, I had that kind of face, yes. You know, after doing the Red Riders serial, uh, a year or two after that, I did uh, another series uh, at Republic, um, Jungle Girl, and... Um, the same directors, Bill Whitney and um, I can't think of the other one, but they were dual directors for both the Red Rider film and uh, Jungle Girl. So um, anyway, um, keep me going here, Steve. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. I mean, the um, uh, and you didn't remember it, but... <laughs> I certainly remembered you. One of my favorite films of the '40s, which is uh, uh, your your this is a, this predates uh, uh, some of the films we're talking about right now, was a little film that Columbia did called "A Thousand and One Nights," and uh, you got a chance to work with Cornell Wilde and Phil Silvers. I think you got a day on that show. Well, it's not a big deal for you. You played yeah. That that I have very little memory from that. I know that's. That is a, a credit, but um, I uh, I have no memory of really participating in that film. Well, you did. You only had two lines of dialogue. Basically, Cornell Wilde and uh, Phil Silvers are looking for the magic lamp, which has been stolen by the evil wizard, and uh, the they're directed to this little Arab boy, who says, "I gave a camel driver some. He gave it to me for some sugar." And they took the South Road. That was your. That was the limit of your appearance. But it, yeah. it stuck with me because it's a very funny film. I mean, it, I mean, obviously with Phil Silvers in it. How, but I think did you say you had uh, further contact with Cornell Wilde, or was that it? Yes, yes, oh. yes. I uh, we became very good friends, and we. Um, I was featured with him in another film. You have the title there. I can't. Let's see if I can look it up for you while we're talking. Um, Cornell Wilde was one of my favorite actors of that period. Such a swashbuckling, uh, you know, actor. I, of course, most people remember him from uh, playing the trapeze artist in The Greatest Show on Earth for Cecil B. DeMille. Oh, yeah. uh, but he did so many different types of roles. And then, of course, he became a director. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, a very good director. Um we were very good buddies. We were very good buddies going way back then. Um, unfortunately, at this moment, I can't remember the name of the film. I think it was the 20th Century Fox film. 
uh, starring Cornell Wilde. Uh, heck. Um, anyway, um, we'll keep going here. Now, going back to American Grill in the Philippines, uh, what are your memories of Tyrone Power? A, um, a classic guy, all business, uh, never, uh, never tried to be a big shot at all. He cooperated um, and uh, was just like one of the boys, you know. Um, so I have nothing but good things, thoughts uh, with Tyrone Power. And... Um, um, well, I, I credit I credit him with sprinkling me with some pixie dust because when I was three years old, my parents came out from Chicago to visit my uncle, and I was in the LAX airport. And as my mother tells the story, he, she sees Tyrone Power looking at me standing there in my little car coat, and he picked me up in his arms and introduced himself. And my mother almost fainted, of course, because she was a big Ty Power fan. What woman wasn't? And I, I credit him with um, <laughs> doing something about show business because that obviously had a positive effect on me. By the way, oh, the, name of the, the name of the movie you were trying to think of, I believe, was called The Home Stretch. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. Home Stretch. With, yep. with you and Cornel uh, Wilde, uh, Maureen and, Yeah, I, I played the jockey in that. And the, um, Kurt Newman was the director, right? Uh, let's see. Uh, according to this, the director was H. Bruce Humberstone. Oh, Bruce Humberstone. Okay. All right. 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 Yeah, Bruce yeah. Humberstone. Right. And I remember um, in Homestretch, um, I say I played a jockey in that, and um, they uh, came to a point where they needed me for a close-up riding in a race all the other shots obviously were my stunt people so i agreed to do it and they gave me this broken down former champion horse and um, um so we get to do the scene an actual riding scene you know i'm i'm riding as a jockey and so they is have there a like, camera is there like, truck. Is there like a camera truck driving alongside you? Have the camera you? truck right on the uh, right on the ground there, a few right. feet from me. So, action! We're doing it. I'm riding and I'm holding on like dear life, you know. <laughs> Bruce Humberson yells out to me because the camera truck is just right in back of me, you know. Whip him! Whip him, Tommy! And I'm saying to myself, you son of a gun, I'm lucky to be on this God-blessed horse. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't take my hands off the reins and, and, and try to whip the horse. I'll always remember that. Wow. But it was <laughs> a good film and um, good people on it and nice, nice experience. Did you, um, during this whole period when you're getting a lot of acting work, did you have the same agent or did you have different agents? Was there someone helping you along? Well, William Morris uh, was an agent for some time. Um, for, I mean, the good old days with William Morris, 
their office on El Camino Road in Beverly Hills, you know, way before it became William Morris Endeavor. And uh, and were you still living in the Carthay Circle area? Yes, yes. Um, I remember. Right on the, a little rem- place. Remember- with, yeah. It was, my uh, block was one block long, parallel to Olympic Boulevard, and the cross street practically was La Cienega. So I'm just a block or two from Beverly Hills. Sure, I but, know. Uh, well, my, my... In the Los, Angeles, the Los Angeles zoning area, and, and so I didn't go to schools in Beverly Hills. I already mentioned to you the schools right. that I went to. And I used to go to the movie palace, which was there, the Great Carthay Circle. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. When, in the days when Shirley Temple would uh, premiere one of her films was right there at the at the circle that's not there anymore as you know no no i know i i I remember vividly going there in 1960 to see the roadshow engagement of john wayne's the alamo oh gosh and then so that was just very very memorable for me Um, i still remember certain names at uh, carthay center school margaret mcgraw she had the greatest English handwriting. She was the principal, and uh, Ethel Doss was the vice principal. Uh, years after that, I uh, got a got into a depression one day, and got in my car. This is years and years after, <laughs> you know, Carthay Center School. And I drive up to the school, and I walk in, and somebody comes to me, who are you? What, 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 what do you want? What do you want? And I started crying. I said, I just wanted to remember the great old days when I went to birthday school. Nice wow. days of my life. So um, Carthay was memorable to me. Now, Tommy, you also got a chance to work with Johnny Weissmuller in a Tarzan movie, Tarzan and the Leopard Woman. Right, definitely. Another, he was um, also uh, terrific to all of us, a good friend. And um, we shot that film uh, right at the end of the Second World War, I think. We shot it um, right near... um, Pasadena, in Pasadena. At the, um, at the uh, Arcadia Arboretum. Yeah, yeah, there was sort of a jungle atmosphere there, and uh, uh, that's where we, we shot the film. I, thought, I think we shot it during VJ Day or with the end of World War II. Uh, we, we shot that film, and, um, and I had a fight sequence with uh, Johnny Sheffield, who played Boy. Brenda Joyce played the gal, and of course, the great Johnny Weissmuller. Um, uh, what do you, what was, do you re- what do you remember about Johnny Sheffield? I always liked him. Uh, he did. Uh, I guess he did a number of film series after those movies too. Uh, he, he he was uh, quite um, he was uh, quite well known in the industry. We. Um, we didn't really get along, you know. We were, like in the film, we were competitors, and we were competitors outside of shooting. So, um, uh, although I respected him, I, um, you know, we 
we we weren't buddies. Let's just put it that way. Well, speaking of buddies, did you have any actor buddies at that time in which you would consider close friends, names I would recognize? Um, I had a lot of friends. Um, trying to think. Um, mostly in radio um, that stay with me forever. But um, um, I can see their faces. I can't remember their names. No, that's fine. <laughs> Excuse me there. No, no, not at all. Now, in 48, uh, you did, I believe, a film noir called Cry of the City. Right. With Victor Mature. That was Robert Yadmack yeah. was the director. And um, a good film. A good film. And... Um, See, who was the male star of that? Um, uh, Victor, the, Victor, oh, uh, Victor Mature. Victor Mature, right. And um, um, Great cast. I mean, you, you had Richard Conti, Fred Clark, Shelley Winters. Exactly. Um, uh, Richard Conti and I were good friends. Um, we used to be members of the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. So along with all my exploits in the entertainment business, as a sideline, um, I became quite a good junior tennis champion. I was Southern California interscholastic champion. I lived next door to Esther, uh, to um, I lived to um, uh, a woman that uh, was very close to Bobby Riggs and and was responsible for his success. Took care of him, gave him lessons and got him involved in the world of tennis. And Esther Bartosz was his name, Dr. Esther Bartosz. So I lived next door to her. And um, so tennis was um, a good part of my life, uh, along with the uh, entertainment business. Now, Why did I get into that? Where, where uh, were we? We were talking about our, our, our your friends, etc. Now, in 49... You went over to Universal, and you you got a chance to work with Audie Murphy on Bad Boy, which was his first yeah. film. Yeah. Uh, again, um, a terrific guy. Very, very nice. And um, uh, very cooperative. Uh, nice relationship. I had a very nice relationship with Audie. During the filming, uh when we shot that film, we went up high up in the mountains to shoot a lot of it, and the weather was, uh, you know, destructive, and there were days when we couldn't shoot. We just had to wait for the weather to come around, and um, during those times, idle times, uh, there were all kinds of um, gambling games going on with the crew and stuff, you know, poker and stuff. And I started to get in one of the games, and I remember I wasn't doing well at all. And Adi came over to me and said, hey, Tom, forget it. You don't need that. You don't need to get in these games. And um, uh, they're and better that's things in, that, That's interesting because Adi was known as a big gambler. Yeah, well, that's right. why he told me to, to take it easy. You know, the impression but, uh, the impression I got about Audie, and this is very meaningful for me because I'm developing a limited series 
about Audie's life. Um, uh, we're, uh, we're just uh, getting started. I'm working with a writer named David Ward, who won the Oscar for The Sting back in 73. Right. And uh, my producing partner is Arthur Friedman. And we're also working now with Dean Devlin, who produced, among other films, Independence Day. Right. But, uh, I recall the names. I know the names. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Audie, Audie's quite a figure. And i um, curious because one of the things about Audie Murphy that he hid all those years, no, nobody knew about it, was he was suffering from what we call today PTSD, post-traumatic yes. stress disorder, from his combat right. experience. Yeah, most decorated hero in uh, in our history. Yeah, yeah. He he was awarded thirty three medals for bravery, which is unheard of. of I course. um after his death and everything, I uh, was invited down to Texas, which was his home territory, and um, uh, gave his speech, and uh, it was an honor. It was a. Uh, uh, an event in honor of Audie, and so I came down there and uh, was able to speak about him, and uh, so those were nice moments. Well, you got a chance to work with him a second time with Jimmy Stewart in Night Passage. Right, right. We Didn't we play brothers in that? I think we were brothers in that film. Um, good old Night Passage, yeah. James Stewart... Um, trying to think of um, a couple of the character stars in that film, but the names are not coming to me right well, at the moment. I'll, I'll have them up in, in two seconds because um, uh, that that's an important film because um, it was another of the films. Um, hang on one second here. Do, 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 do. Okay, here we go. Yeah, that was uh, one of the, well, it was directed by James Nielsen. Yes, and, right. Uh, you had Dan Durier. Right. You had uh, Brandon DeWilda, J.C. Right. Flippin, Robert J. Wilkie, Hugh Beaumont, Jack Elam. Yeah. Um, you play I worked with Jack Elam and some of those people you just mentioned on other ventures and the other films. Right, too. he always had that unusual eye. I guess he lost an eye in, in some kind of accident, and he always had that interesting eye. I don't think you were a brother in that movie. In Night Passage, you play a character named Howie Sladen. So uh -huh. uh, the two brothers in the movie are Jimmy Stewart and Audie Murphy. Um, uh -huh. But a certainly, and a very good film. I just, I, I've always enjoyed that movie very much. In 50, the year after Bad Boy, you got a chance to be in uh, a Richard Widmark, Jack Palance uh, movie called Panic in the Streets. Right, right, right. I really didn't have much to do. I, I, um, um, let's see, who was the director of that again? Uh, let's see. Panic in the Streets was a 20th Century Fox yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. So let me and, let me see if I can get you that real quick here because the uh, uh, director was from New York. Um, no, maybe not. But I was the only one from Los Angeles um, that the director brought in for that film. I don't know. Uh, I sort of had. Um, a short-term contract at 20th Century Fox during that time. And um, 
so I we ended up doing that film in um, in uh, New Orleans, and um, uh, I can you... remember Jack Palance. There was a scene where he's on a, sh a ship, or uh, in, uh, and um, he was had to climb up the mast. Yeah, he's being so chased. They, you, you. they said to uh, Jack, well, uh, who was the director on that film? I'm trying to think. Ilya Kazan. Oh, yeah, now not right, I knew. Ilya, I know, from New York, right, right, right. And I used to follow Ilya around watching him, you know, because he was one of the greats, um, and especially during that period of time. Um I would follow him around, watching him shoot and how he worked with the actors, etc. How we would rehearse them and then let the uh, camera crew come in and light it up and everything, and then bring the cast back and shoot the scenes. But I'll never forget with Jack Palance. Now you know he was a former fighter. He was in a bout at um, St. Nicholas Arena in New York. So uh, he was tough son of a gun in one of his first films. So they said, um, Mr. Palance, um, um, we got this shot of you. We want you right on the boat. But then the stunt man will come in and he'll go up, climb right up, right up there and do the uh, tough stuff. And Jack looks at him and he says, you got to be kidding. Nobody does my stunts. I do it all. He wouldn't let any stunt, and he ended up doing all the tough um, strategic uh, dangerous shots himself. You, you play a character named Vince Poldy. I didn't that, have much dialogue in that film. Now, I, I do remember you, interestingly, you didn't have a lot of dialogue, but you're memorable in the opening of Battle Cry with Van Heflin and, oh, yeah. and uh, Tab Hunter, um, 1955. You play Van Heflin's uh, adjutant. Uh, it's funny because your name is interesting. You're called Zilch. Yeah. Little Zilch. Well, at the time... I was in the Marine Corps, and that was a Warner's film, and the casting director, the all-time great Sally Biano. We were good friends. Uh, he was a good tennis player. We used to play tennis a lot and um, at Jack Warner's house. Ah, gosh, thinking of Jack Warner from Warner Brothers. I went out with his daughter, Barbara, lovely gal. She co-hosted a party for me at my house. But anyway, um, um, where were we now? I don't want to lose my thoughts. We were talking about Jack Warner and going up to his house after uh, during the battle cry. Yeah. Anyway, um, the battle cry, what did I, what was the point I wanted to get at? Battle cry was with, um, oh, yes. Okay. I'm in the Marine Corps at the time, and Salibiano um, arranged for me to get temporary additional duties away from him 
and uh, to come and shoot this film. And uh, so the Marine Corps let me off, and um, 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 so I was actually, um, you know, still in the Marine Corps when I shot that film. So that was shot mostly in Southern California, correct? Oh, yes. I yes. think they probably shot some of it down at Camp Pendleton, I would think. No, we we went to Viegas Island, too. Oh. Yes, most of it in Southern California, but we went on location in Viegas Island in the, near the Puerto Rico in that spot there. Oh, that okay. Area. Yeah, because I remember uh, now that... Um, there was a scene where we get out of these little boats and we uh, come to shore. And um, the tide had turned, and when we shot it, I jump out of the boat and run in the water t to the shore, and I almost drowned. I didn't realize how deep the water was. Oh, gosh. Now, as I recall, you know, I, I, I've seen the movie many times. It's one of my favorites. Um, uh, Van Heflin's character, uh, Huxley, uh, yep. uh, Sam Huxley, Major Sam Huxley, is killed at the end. Uh, yep. He's hit for my artillery fire. I think, as I recall, you're in that scene, I think, because you are near him or when he was brought yeah. in. I'm in the scene, yeah. But as I said before, I had very, very little dialogue. Right. I was in a lot of scenes, a lot of scenes, but not much dialogue. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I also see that you got, you've got so many credits, Tommy. It's just amazing how many movies you're in. You got a chance to work with uh, Jeff Chandler in the battle at Apache Pass. Right, right, at Universal. Universal. Well, Jeff Chandler... His real name was I. I, I uh, his real name was. Um, yeah, he was Jewish, and they changed. He changed his name. Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, oh shoot! I knew. Jeff and I had done a lot of radio work together. Trying to think, you don't have his real name, do you? I'll tell Ira, you. In, I'll, I'll tell you in twenty seconds. Um, um, Ira. Jeff Chandler. Ira something. Yes, his name was, uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. And they don't say it in, I, in IMDb, so I will get it to you in a second. Um, yeah, one of my favorite actors, and, and such a tragedy with him that he died from, yeah. a, from a, 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 pretty, um, a pretty basic operation to help his back. Yeah, yeah. So we, um, I did several radio shows because he started in radio, you know, in the in the golden days of radio, and so um, it was a nice uh, relationship that we had uh, continued. To Jeff, have Chan on that Jeff film. Chandler's real name was Ira Grossel. There you go, Ira. Well, I got the Ira right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he had he he was known for that premature gray hair. Right, right, right. And two years before the Battle at Apache Pass, he also played Cochise in, 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 his, in his first film, which is one of my favorite movies, Broken Arrow. 
Right. And, uh, one of my podcast guests uh, earlier this year, I had Deborah Paget on. Oh my goodness, Deborah Paget. Well, that's the um, what was the film that we did? Her first film. Um, yeah, well, we talked about it earlier. I think she's in Cry of the City. Yes, Cry of the City, right. It was her first film. And um, she was very, very young, and she was just excellent, just excellent in the film, and I had a little crush on her. So Who, um, who didn't? Yeah, during the shooting, or right after the shooting, um, she lived with her mother, not far from me, in the Miracle Mile area. So I called her and asked her to go out. She would go out with me. She said yes. So I dress up, and I go to her house, and I knock on the door. And maybe it was in her apartment. I don't know. But I knock on it, and her mother comes out. She's a big, huge, heavy woman. And um, I said, I'm Tommy Cook. I, uh, I, I work with your daughter in the movie, and um, uh, we have a date tonight. Is, is she ready? And um, she said, oh, yes, yes, I just hold it there. She'll be right out. So I wait outside, and a um, couple of minutes later, out comes Deborah with her mother. No way in the world is she going to allow Deborah Paget to be with me alone. And so she attended our date, the mother. Oh, gosh. Do you remember where you went? I think I think we went to get something to eat, and we might have gone to a show or something. I that you're, you're, you're catching me there, so I don't really want to uh, – I can't really give you the truthful uh, – so, Tommy, you've worked with so many different people over the years. Um, of all the actors you've worked with, uh, men and women, who would you say was the most impressive to be around and you kind of just took a step back to appreciate them? Uh, is there someone that stands out in all the actors you've worked with? Well, um, one of the people that was so... Um meaningful to me going back to the radio days was Mercedes McCambridge she was Arch Obler's favorite actress and um, we starred on a couple of shows together and um, um, she became close to my mother and um, Mercedes when she was very young had a drinking problem and my mother used to try to console her with it and um, Christian science. I think my family got involved in Christian science uh, when we came out to California with because of my dad's health and being an invalid now, couldn't work or anything. And um, so I was, I was very close to um, Mercedes, and um, I've always had strong feelings for her. And you know. Going back to the radio days, uh, Steve, my times with Art Schobler, um, you know, he would never let me take a script home. And um, I would go there and I would get the script and um, it wasn't really a rehearsal. 
and then we would come back for the dress rehearsal and then go on the air. So I, he just sort of believed in me, and he wrote for me. He knew me as that little kid that, that, that he would put in his scripts. And I be- um, I believe some of the our- most memorable shows that I've ever done were written and directed by Arch Obler. I think he, isn't he credited with being the one who made the first 3D movie? I think that's Absolutely. Awesome. Right. Yes. Yes. I remember, but, um, I remember that very, very well, that, that he was very much involved with that as well. Now, you, um, later in your career, you got a chance to actually write and produce a movie, uh, a couple of movies. Uh, one was called Player, which I believe was inspired by all of your tennis playing. That's right. Um, <clears throat> with Players, uh, that was produced by Robert Evans, the late Robert Evans, just passed away a year ago. We were about the same age. Um, and um, Robert and I were good friends off the screen. Um, um, he had a tennis court at his home in Beverly Hills. And I used to bring some of my celebrity friends over there, and we'd play tennis. And um, so with my tennis background, I decided to um, write a treatment, a 40-page treatment. Um, My original title, are you ready for this? Balls. (laughs) B-A-L-L-S. Anyway, I called Robert and uh, said, I want to, uh, I want to send you this screenplay. Um, and he says, all right, bring it over. So I went over. He was, um, Evans was head of Paramount Productions, you know. Right. And, um, well, I got it over to him. And a couple of days later, he calls me. And he says, uh, balls? You must be kidding, Tommy. I said, well, he said, um, I want to bring in a top writer. Uh, you got any ideas? Let me know. I'll think of some good writers, and we'll go from there. And that's that's how it started, and um, it became players. And um, I um, it was my original story, and I was also like second unit director for choreographed all the tennis sequences. We went to I went and got a hold of the top people at Wimbledon, which is the most um, of the uh, Grand Slam tennis tournaments. Wimbledon is um, probably the most appreciated Grand Slam event. Um, And um, so I got a hold of the executives and I went to Wimbledon and I met with them. And I arranged for them for the first time in their history, they allowed a movie production to shoot on their hallowed grounds. And so we shot some of the tennis scenes right on Wimbledon. I remember right during the Wimbledon championships was in July. 
five minutes or seven minutes before the top women, the actual women champions go on the court to play their finals, I get on the court, 14,000 people on the stadium court watching Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova are to play the finals. I get on the court. I said, ladies and gentlemen, before the women's finals, man, just take a moment to tell you that um, we've been shooting a film, a tennis film, and um, um, we like we got one shot that we need to do right now. Dean Paul Martin um, and um, and um, uh, Guillermo Vilas. Oh. He was a South American champion, U.S. Open champion, who was in the film. I said, we need to do one shot there. And um, so now I introduce him. So coming out on the court, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Dean Martin's son, who is the co-star of this film, Dean Paul Martin. Couple of claps. Nothing. <laughs> I don't know. So, who the hell is Dean Paul Martin? Now I'm, oh my God, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I get back on the mic and I said, now, ladies and gentlemen, to work out on the court and do this one scene with um, Dean Paul Martin is your U.S. Open champion from South America, Guillermo Villas. Now the crowd starts to get into it and they clap. I get back on the center court and I say, ladies and gentlemen, playing one of the top roles in the event in our film is none other than the all-time great champion, Pancho Gonzalez. The crowd goes crazy. They go crazy. They all stand up. Now they're giving me the, the, the crossing around the neck, you know, get off the court. So I run off the court, and on comes Chris Everett and Martina, and they play their match. Ali McGraw was the co-star of the film. She comes over to me later, and she says, Tommy, you know, I've seen a lot of exciting things. She said, that was, that was something. That was too much. So... Um, those were glorious so, days. So this is and I'm the, the only civilian that ever played and worked out. I worked out with Gonzalez on the center court of Wimbledon. It's, the word I wanted to say is prestigious. Of course, the U.S. Open may be the most important, but the most prestigious Grand Slam tennis event is Wimbledon. And so I was I'm, on I'm certainly... Court. I'm, I'm certain that helping you get a green light at Evan, at Paramount, not only your relationship with Robert Evans, but the fact is his wife, Allie McGraw, probably there, he saw a good role for her. Yep. Yep. But yep. I'm curious, um, of all the actors in Hollywood to play a young lead, how did Dean Martin's son get that role? Well, I wrote the film originally for Vincent Van Patten and Farrah Fawcett. Oh. And um, in the days when Farrah was the number one, you know, she was Charlie's Angels. She was uh, uh, so prominent then. And Vinny Van Patten was my good buddy, Dick Van Patten's son, terrific right. tennis player. Um, 
and became a pro. And um, at one time up in Canada, he beat John McEnroe. Gives you an idea how good Vinnie Van Patten was. And we were good buddies. So I wrote the screenplay because, just between us, Vinnie and Farah were very close. Very close. So um, um, with that kind of relationship, I wrote the screenplay. And now, um, where are we? Keep me going here. So, so Vinny Van Patten, you wrote it for, but then you bring in Dino Paul Martin. Well, they, um, yeah, when it came time that they were really going to do the film, uh, Vinny came in that they wanted to, um, they wanted to do a test with Vinny, and one of the people that worked, associate producers that worked with Evans, um, suggested. Dean Paul Martin. Now, I taught Dino. I spent an awful lot of time at Dean Martin's home in Beverly Hills, 601 Mountain Drive, and he had a tennis court. And I taught all of Dean's kids, including Dean Paul Martin and, um, um, and Jeannie Martin, his wife at the time. We were very, very good friends. And um, anyway... Uh, Gene Taft, I think was his name, and suggested, he said, let's decide. Uh, they weren't sure about Vinny because Vinny didn't really have, uh, I don't know, they, they just didn't feel that um, they, weren't, they weren't satisfied. So we tested Vinny, and um, through this co-producer, we brought in Dean Paul Martin. And I must say, Vinny was too young for the role. And um, Dean, Par Dean Paul Martin, little Dino, um, gave a great um, uh, test. And uh, they decided, Evans and his staff decided to uh, take a shot on uh, Dean Paul Martin. So that's how it happened. Got it. Now, you also uh, wrote and produced uh, on an action movie called Roller Coaster. Right. Um, when I was very, very young, there was the Ocean Park. You remember that? Pacific Ocean, Ocean Park. Park in Los Angeles, right on the ocean there. Sure. And they had the, uh, the Ferris wheel and everything and, um, and a little roller coaster. So when I was very, very young, I went on the roller coaster and I was so scared I couldn't open my eyes. I shut my eyes and just held on. When it was over with, I was, I was excited. And I said, I want to go on it again. In those days, you could keep going on and on. You didn't have to buy another ticket, you know. Once you bought a ticket, you could go on the, the, uh, all day long. So I started going on roller coasters. Wherever I could, I went down to San Diego on a roller coaster. And when I went on vacation in the Midwest uh, on a film, uh, there was a roller coaster. I went on that. So I developed a love for roller coasters that um, 
it just gave you all the ingredients, all the dramatic ingredients. And so um, I decided to write a roller coaster film. And um, I brought in another writer that I uh, had known working with him on um, former television series. I brought him in. I gave him the storyline. And um, and uh, we put together a 40-page treatment. Now, there was a, um, a former um, agent who became a producer at Universal. Maybe you have it there. I can't think of his name. And um, um, he was a good friend. He lived near Dean Martin, and I knew him well. You're talking and about uh, Jennings Lang. Jennings Lang, thank you so much. Jennings Lang, yep. And uh, so we were friends and um, through the Dean Martins. So I took the script to him. And um, and as I say, he was a producer, at, became a producer at Universal. And um, they bought my... Uh, they brought, bought my 40-page uh, treatment, and um, I didn't have a good association with, um, uh, what was his name again? Jennings Lang. Jennings, yeah. I didn't, uh, uh, I think he was, he owed at me. Was, you know, I wasn't a big shot and as far as creating films and everything, and... Um, no, but we weren't uh, enemies at all, but I never had a close relationship with Jennings. But anyway, he had took it to Universal and it uh and it became roller coaster and uh and um was well reviewed and um the film spawned roller coaster themed amusement parks all over the world. Well, I mean, it also had a hell of a cast. I mean, it was one George of those... those that was Helen Hunt's first film when she was 13 years old. She had a bit in the film. And... Um, I mean, you got Henry Fonda, Richard Widmark, George Siegel. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's fun. That's when you could put together casts like that. Yeah. It didn't break yeah. the bank. Well, the Jennings did that. And um, well, I I, uh, I promised a friend of mine that Evanson I would I, wrote the uh, screenplay. I remember part of my deal was that I need that uh, they arranged for me to have lunch with Levinson and Link to go over the story elements and see if I had, to get an idea of where they were going with the film and if I could bring in some good features that so we met I met with Levinson and Link we had lunch and it was very nice and I think it's one of the things that bugged Jenny's Lang uh, anyway uh, uh, a good film yeah let's see Go ahead. Uh, yeah uh, Sanford Sheldon was credited with a story yeah you, he's you the one that I brought in right there was a um I don't really want to get into it too much, but um, um, Sheldon, what was his name? Sheldon. 
Oh yes, uh, Sheldon. Um, uh, hang on one Sydney second. Sheldon, no, what? Uh, his name Sheldon is Sheldon uh, Sanford Sheldon. Yeah, Sanford Sheldon. Yeah, he's the one that I brought in to work on the uh, st the story with me, and uh, he's the one that um, uh, I had met through doing some television shows, and um, I had a contract with him where I paid him in front the um, Writers Guild fee, minimum fee, but it was an appropriate fee in front to work with me. Not after the film was sold, but in front. In other words, it didn't go, it didn't go. He still got the money. I got nothing. So... Um, when it came down for contracts, um, he comes out and tells me that he's my partner on it. I said, what? You're my partner? I paid you in front. I gave you the storyline, and you worked with me. And being a, a top writer, uh, the way that you handled the, um, the treatment... It certainly was very valuable, but you're not my partner. And so there became a legal issue, and I didn't want to destroy the relationship with Universal. And um, so just as you said, um, he received credit as storyline and myself as a social producer and based on a story by Tommy Cook. That's the way they uh, had it in those days. And I sued him. I sued Sanford Sheldon. Did you win? Two or three months after the lawsuit, he dies. He'd oh, married wow. a gal and got her pregnant, and he died. Heart attack, whatever. And so I just let it go. I mean, uh, Nothing to, nothing more to sue. I'm not going to sue his new wife or anything. So, well, um, Tommy, I told my friend, uh, uh, my friend Stan, that I would ask you a question about sure. Stal Stalag 17. I know you didn't have much work on Stalag 17, but you no. are listed as one of the prisoners. Did you get yep. more than a couple days on that, or was that a quickie? Um. I don't think I worked more than two or three days on that film. That's going way, way back, way, way back. And um, I had very, very little to do on Stalag 17. So um, I couldn't have worked more than a couple of days on that film. Do you remember if you worked indoors or outdoors? On that film? I have no recollection. Okay. Sorry. No worries. That's <laughs> okay. Well, we, we have been listening to a person with a wonderful memory, Tommy Cook, uh, who has been in a number of legendary films and radio shows and serials and TV shows and has worked with a real kaleidoscope of actors from Mercedes McCambridge to Audie Murphy to Jimmy Stewart. This has been delightful, Tommy. Well, I've enjoyed it, and I thank you for uh, letting me uh, 
go on the line with you. I just want to finish, um, you know, I'm 92 years old. I'm still in good condition, still play a little tennis. And uh, But I'm working on the um, prequel for Roller Coaster. And the title is White Knuckles, Last Ride. And I'm um, very excited about it. And um, I've been working uh, with one writer, and I'm bringing in another writer to uh, work with me on the final draft. I'll have it finished by the uh, end of this year, and so then I'll hit the CAA and UTA, William Morris Endeavor, etc., and a couple of top production companies like Skydance, and um, and uh, so that's um, I'm not finished in the entertainment industry. I still go to two radio conventions, Spurred Back in Hollywood and reps, radio enthusiasts of Puget Sound in the, the Seattle, Washington area each year where we recreate the old-time great classic radio shows. So that's that's been fun. But um, all well, my you... energies now are on White Knuckles, Last well, Ride. Well, we wish so you a lot of luck with that. You know, you, you were born in the same year as Clint Eastwood, and Clint Eastwood is like the... Uh, Energizer Hello. Bunny. It sounds like you share that trait with Clint Eastwood. Hello. Can you hear me? Hello. 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 Tommy, Tommy can you hear me? Oh yeah, I I hit the button by. Oh, we lost him. <laughs> 